The following is a presentation of the Boston Podcast Network. Podcasting is a great way for professionals to tell their story. Find out how you can get started at pod617.com. Welcome to the Ask Harry podcast. This is Harry Margolis, and this is the podcast where we interview experts on all aspects of estate planning. In this episode of Ask, Harry continues his conversation with financial advisor Gabrielle Clements on the subject of financial planning and divorce. Gabrielle, thank you for coming back. In our last uh, segment, we talked about financial planning uh, in the event of divorce or planning for divorce. And today we're going to talk about what what to think about in terms of either a second marriage or a second relationship or, or a, a blended family of some sort. But before we get into that, I always uh, try to answer a question from the AskHarry.info website where consumers post their legal questions. And so I will read one and uh, I'll, I'll try to answer. And if you can add anything, that would be great. We are in a half century long loving and trusting but not legally joined partnership and are finding our end of life planning especially challenging. We cannot marry because one of us has a remote but realistic possibility of experiencing something that would bankrupt both of us if we were married. Nothing illegal involved, she assures us. For this reason, we have managed our finances separately. In our efforts to understand how to protect each other, we have read widely, but have not found anything reliable or any thorough resources for addressing our situation. I think it sounds like that is a gap there, that people aren't uh, talking or writing enough about non-married situations. But I don't think the planning actually has to be that difficult or that different from what a married couple would do in terms of all the estate planning, powers of attorney, healthcare proxies, wills, and trusts. And um, just like for a married couple, they can leave trust for one another. And one nice thing about doing so is <clears throat> that if the person who has no financial risk of bankruptcy dies first, he or she can leave a trust for the other partner that would be protected if the other partner were to be sued because that's how, um, how the law of uh, legal liability works. So the one reason that there might not be a lot written on this is that if, they, if you go to an estate planning lawyer, they can handle it relatively easily, I think. I don't know if you have any other comments on that, Gabrielle. What I've always uh, found, yeah, I, I work with same-sex couples as, before DOMA and the way that they would, they would, provide for their partner if because they couldn't get married and you didn't have the social security carryover and things like that was through the use of life insurance. Mm -hmm. uh, so having the other person, the non-money partner, let's say, own the life insurance policy on the life of the other. And then upon death, uh, the death benefit would go to the non-money partner tax-free. So that's an easy, efficient tax, tax, you know, free way of supporting one in the event that, that one of the partners were to pass away. So that, it provided somebody is insurable, that is, that's one good option. That's a very good point. It's, it's less of an issue today with the federal state tax uh, threshold at 11.58 million, but that is an issue because if you're married, whatever you leave your spouse is, you can leave them tax-free. But if but there's no such exemption for leaving money to someone who's not a spouse. And in Massachusetts, it's maybe more of an issue than it is in most places because we have an estate tax threshold of a million dollars. So whereas a, a married couple, the typical plan 
would be to create a Q-tip trust where a first spouse passes and the money passes to the surviving spouse in a way that won't be taxed when the first spouse dies and a million dollars can be protected to be taxed, to be free of tax also when the second spouse dies. And that's not available in the same way to a non-married couple. So I, I, I like the life insurance idea where it's appropriate. So, get, so getting into our discussion in, in this podcast, there are more and more people who are, in, who are not in the Ozzie and Harriet typical marriage of uh, one marriage and two perfect kids. And more often people have different relationships, whether they're married or not during life and, may, and the different partners may have different children which raises all of which raises a lot of issues for estate planning and I think for financial planning too. And I don't know what's in your practice. Harry, I see a lot of different uh, blended families. Most are fine while the, the married couple, let's say they're your parents, if they are married to different people and they either have bring in half children or stepchildren or some kind of uh, blend, it really is depends on how well everybody, the, is communicating what the money situation is and upon the death of one of those one of those people it gets very complicated around the, the estate planning controversy and who gets the money i'm working on a case right now that there was a life estate in a house down in the southern part of the country and there's just problems with the contents of the house. There's mm -hmm. problems around support of the house. And there's plenty of money to go around, but nobody can agree to how it should be allocated because the surviving spouse also has plenty of money of her own. Mm -hmm. And you have the kids of the deceased who's, who could really use, they're in their 50s, they could really use some of the funds but now they have to wait until the, the the surviving spouse passes away before they can get their their part of the trust. So I think it, people have to be very cognizant, very thoughtful about what the needs are of their immediate children as well as their surviving spouse and perhaps the means of the surviving spouse to support himself or herself on the funds and pass those down to maybe the next generation sooner rather than later. Yeah, I, I can see that because it, you may almost a knee-jerk plan would be to say, okay, we'll leave the funds in trust for the surviving spouse. And when he or she dies, they'll go to my kids, which in a way protects the kids because it won't go to the surviving spouse's kids. But there could be a long wait. And, and there's also a question of how, uh, where did those funds come from? Did, were they built up over many decades in the first marriage with the other parent? of these kids and, and then really should they be going to this other person who had nothing to do with with bringing the with developing those funds or living through the hard times before they came along so i think there's that uh, issue that can also raise resentment but but you had mentioned earlier in the other context life insurance i wonder how life insurance might be a way to make sure there's enough money for for kind of both interests the children of the deceased and the surviving spouse yeah, and, and life insurance would be a perfect solution to providing for a surviving spouse, even in a, a life insurance trust. But 
Also, we at some point, you have to just make sure you're insurable. So it's very easy to throw out this great resolution, but it's been very difficult for some people to get life insurance. And uh, life insurance companies are becoming, I believe, just a little bit more restrictive because of the number of older elderly people. After a certain age, the likelihood that they're going to pass away is higher. I work with long-term care insurance policies as well, and it's been very difficult to get some of these these people protected and covered just because of what's happening in healthcare right now. The important part is to get your life insurance early and get for as long as possible, and it will provide a lot of financial solution to your beneficiaries for sure. And you mentioned long-term care insurance. That's another issue is um, when you get into this new relationship, are you signing up to pay for the person's, the new spouse's long-term care and to take care of him or her for the duration? Yeah, that's a good question. And again, it's something that's going to deplete the assets of the couples, especially if they are of different means. And that's that's not going to be met with much happiness from the beneficiaries, the families of the first moneyed spouse. And it, it just creates a problem. And it just doesn't need to, if people just think a little bit about what they're doing and maybe give money during their lifetime to their children or their beneficiaries when they can really use it as opposed to waiting. But another issue really is the contents of the home and the antiques mm-hmm. and the belongings of, in particular, a, a parent who's passed away, maybe dad, mom passed away, dad remarries, mm-hmm. and everything is in the control of that new spouse. And then dad passes away and you have to fight tooth and nail to get those things back from the surviving spouse, and it doesn't always end well. I think that's something uh, as an estate planner that we, we often don't think about. They may, we often ask clients if they want to make a list of particular items to go to particular people, but, the, but often they don't do it. And so the tangibles just follow the house or they go to the, the spouse, whoever that might be, and, and then they get divvied up when the second spouse dies which maybe could be decades after the first family had any connection with her. That's true. And and they may have already given away some of these items or sold them. Yeah. These items, the, the contents of the home and personal belongings, antique cars, these things are held hostage in order to get the the kids of the first marriage potentially to do something that uh, they wouldn't otherwise be be uh, interested in doing. Um, mm-hmm. I, I have a set of golf clubs in South Carolina that is the that is the point of contention around the whole family, and it's just a it's an emotional attachment to playing golf with their dad, and yeah, wow. it so easily could have could have been just handed over during his lifetime. He hasn't mm-hmm. played golf in years. Now he's deceased. And it's sad for the grandson who really wanted them. So Yeah, that is really sad. Of course, even in doing the planning, you have to understand that the grandson really wants those golf clubs. So that can be hard. Do you advise in, in second marriages or non-marriages, but, but, but uh, new relationships that people have uh, prenuptial agreements or or if they're not married, something akin to that, of some kind of partnership agreement? Absolutely. Absolutely. It, just laying out any kind of just terms of the, the relationship, if you will, because these days life is litigious and it's not always a given that everyone's going to do the right thing. 
And to put it in writing is just a meeting of the minds from a contractual perspective. Everybody's laying it out there and just saying, if we don't make it, this, this is what's happening. This is what we both agree to do. And maybe the marital assets, things that you build up throughout the course of the marriage can be divided, but anything that we're bringing into the marriage separately or potentially an inheritance, that will all be kept separate. So whatever it is, whatever you can do ahead of time to prescribe the exit plan, it will be make any exit much simpler and mm-hmm. also keep people together. So, right. you know. And yeah, because there may, may be some, one less stressor on the relationship. Exactly. And what's very common now are postnuptial agreements. So if somebody, as I was describing in our earlier um, segment, if somebody didn't necessarily want to get divorced, but they wanted to have financial security and maybe live separately, you could scribe a postnuptial agreement that says, okay, we're not going to live together anymore because really that just hurts the kids mm-hmm. and the planning for the kids, but this is how we're going to move on. This is how we're going to go forward, staying together, but living separately. Mm-hmm. And um, again, meeting of the minds around how things are going to work from here on, I think has been very effective, especially in Massachusetts where they're now enforceable. And I think it's also very useful, even if people are going to live, continue to live together, just there might be issues they didn't think about or talk about ahead of time that have come up that need to be resolved. And I find with just the act of, in any kind of, whether it's a marital relationship or a business relationship, the act of putting it down on paper makes you think of things you might not otherwise have thought of, new issues, and then makes you discuss them and come to some resolution. Exactly. It demystifies the whole process of money. Um, It demystifies how things are going to work and it takes the fear out of the unknown. And I think that's just makes up for a healthier relationship. Yeah. And I think it helps a lot with when the kids ultimately get involved too, because it uh, does a couple things. First of all, all of our memories are faulty. So 10 years ago when we got married, the one person might think you agreed to X and the other person to Y. And if it's written down, you have a reference point. And then, the, and then this is a relationship between the parents, not the kids, but the kids might have their own ideas and about how things ought to work. And if they see that it's already been decided by the parents, then they would hopefully defer to that. Exactly. And an important part of that memorializing what is going to happen under certain circumstances is putting down the reason why. So oftentimes in families, I have family meetings with my clients and their adult children all the time. And if one needs a down payment for a home, but the other one doesn't, so then maybe that person, the one who didn't need the money, they're going to get an extra $200,000 upon death. And this is why, because otherwise they could go on through life saying, uh, upon the death of the parent, why did they give me $200,000 less? Yeah. Um, and that creates a lot of hurt and pain and questions. Was I loved less? Was I not as important? And when it could have just been resolved in one in a one-liner in an agreement. So mm-hmm. again, communication is key, especially around money and families. Whatever you can put in writing and involve everybody in the whole process will make for a much happier post-divorce, post-life life for the survivors. And can hopefully keep the family together rather than split it apart. Exactly, which often happens far too often. So what, what other issues should be considered in, in having a blended family in terms of finances or issues that need to be agreed upon? 
I think you have to be very aware of the new spouse's role in, say, healthcare. Having being having a child, an adult child, along with the new spouse to participate in some of the healthcare decisions. This is their dad. This is their mom. Depending on how long this they've been married to this other party, it can it can be very hurtful. And they the children often and from what I've seen is they question the motives of the new spouse. Mm-hmm. Again, and then not in an intact family, you don't have the trust. You have actually more mistrust if the communication has not been has not been there and frequent and often. So I think that's important. Any kind of power of attorney, maybe having co-powers of attorney or just having children and everybody available to participate in some of the financial health, mental health decisions of the parent, I think is important. I think this is very important. And, and there are more and more, as we said at the outset, more and more second marriages or relationships that r- raise all of these issues and they need to be discussed by, by, by all the family members. Because we run into this a lot when a, as you were talking about healthcare, when one, when there's a second marriage and one spouse becomes ill and all of a sudden all these people who are living separate lives all of a sudden have to start working together or not working together very well. And, uh, and often they don't work together very well. The new spouse may or may not feel that they signed up to take care of the ill spouse once he or she becomes ill and may or either may, I guess the two patterns we see is either they say that that's not what I signed up for and uh, kids, he's your responsibility or I'm killing myself taking care of him and these good for nothing kids aren't helping out and the kids are saying, well, we don't even know what's going on because she won't talk to us. So it would be important to have that that HIPAA authorization to talk to doctors, talk to their other advisors, just to get some answers. And I don't think people do that enough. We just don't think of it. Yeah. So we often, uh, on a healthcare proxy, you can only name one agent at a time, but who can to make healthcare decisions. But on a HIPAA release, you can allow anybody access to medical information to be able to talk to uh, medical personnel. So we advise our clients to name as many people as they feel comfortable having that communication on, on the HIPAA release. Yeah. And on the healthcare proxy, maybe naming someone other than the new spouse, mm-hmm. uh, maybe just another trusted uh, family friend or someone who cares as much for this person um, as everybody else, but maybe not a child, but maybe not the new spouse either. Just so for somebody who's independent. So a lot of food for thought here. Sounds like anybody uh, who's already in a, in a uh, blended family or contemplating it should do this planning and should probably talk to you. If they yes, were going, absolutely. If they were going to do, how would they find you? They can call my office. My number is 617-725-1702, or they can email me at gabrielle.clemens at rbc.com. That's G-A-B-R-I-E-L-E dot C-L-E-M-E-N-S at rbc.com. Thank you very much, Gabrielle. Thank you, Harry. Thank you for listening to the Ask Harry podcast. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends and colleagues. If you have questions about estate planning, you can find answers at askharry.info. And if you don't find your answer there, you can post a question and I will respond to it. You can also subscribe and listen to future episodes on iTunes. If you're interested in Harry's book, Get Your Ducks in a Row, The Baby Boomer's Guide to Estate Planning, please visit margolis.com. 
That's M-A-R-G-O-L-I-S dot com. Ask Harry is a production of pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network.